Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local Pride Global Technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Stan Jastrzemski, the news director of WFIU. And today we're going to talk about uh, that big issue of health care. Joining us in the studio are three guests who uh, have a lot of different things that they're going to want to say, I'm sure, about the health care issue today. We have Rob Stone who's here. He's uh, been on the show before. Rob's a physician and director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan. He's also state director of the Indiana Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We have June Lyle with us. June is the state director of AARP Indiana. And also joining us today is Paul Van Cleve who's the vice president of operations for SIHO Insurance Service. Of Bloomington. If you want to join us on the program, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. And you can also join the discussion by going to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Stan, good to be with you today. Likewise. All right. Well, we've got a lot of, lot of ground we can cover today. I want to start with a very, very broad question and and uh, I'm going to go to Rob first, and, and as Rob has mentioned, he could probably talk about this for the remainder of the show. Uh, he mentioned that to us before we went on the air. But the the basic question is: Is our healthcare system broken? And if so, you know, what's the the one major thing you think needs to be done to to fix it? Well, I think in my mind, there's no doubt that the system is is badly broken, and it's probably better characterized as a non-system of illness care than as a health care system. And I think we've got to solve two problems and there's a lot of problems we need to solve. But the two problems I think we've got to solve is we've got to figure out how to cover everybody and we've got to figure out how to do it affordably without breaking our entire economy. And so uh, as probably a lot of the listeners know, my, my preferred solution would be that we eventually get to a system where we basically have everybody covered under a single system like Medicare. Mm-hmm. Single payer. Single payer. Mm-hmm. All right. June? I'd agree. I think the current system can be fairly described as broken. I think people who experience the system recognize that it costs too much, it wastes too much, uh, it makes too many mistakes, and it returns too little value for the money that we put into it. Um, and, you know, just as an example of this, we know that health care premiums for the average family have doubled in the past decade, actually a little bit less than the past decade. They're expected to double again in the coming decade. And it's just, it's unsustainable just on the cost end of things. We also have a situation where insurance companies can discriminate against people and, and prevent them from getting the health care that they need. Um, so I would point to two key fixes that I think we really need to um, prioritize as Congress debates this issue. The first would be the issue of affordability. Um, and the second would be the issue uh, of coverage, uh, making sure that uh, there's not discrimination in who's able to uh, access health care in this country. All right. And Paul? Uh, I would agree that the health care system needs reform. And it and that covers all angles. It covers retort reform, for example, which is certainly added to the cost. Uh, mandated benefits are causing insurance companies to cover uh, illnesses and injuries, and there's the accountability. There's no, there's a lack of sense that if I smoke all my life or I eat unhealthy or I have other unhealthy lifestyles, that uh, it should be taken care of. Uh, so certainly, with reform is needed. Uh, it needs to look. We need to look at the process and not hurry to that decision. But think about all sides. And as you can see right now with uh, the Senate bill that just passed, you had unions and the American uh, uh, health insurance plans who were on one side who are now on the other side. So we have no final uh, product to look at this point. But certainly uh, I like the debate that's going on. I think some good things will come from it. Could you uh, explain a little bit about SIHO? 
I think that that's a, you know, that's a nice acronym, but I'm not sure a lot of people know what it is. Oh, thank you, Bob. I appreciate the exciting <laughs> opportunity to do that. SIHO <laughs> is a not-for-profit uh, health organization. We're an HMO and insurance plan administrator. Uh, we were established in 1987 uh, and have been in existence for over 20 years uh, with local uh, providers, Bloomington Hospital, uh, multi-county physicians, uh, Schneck Memorial Hospital, and uh, Columbus Regional Hospital being our owners. Uh, we like to think that we're the local friendly option for employers uh, to consider. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned um, the people smoking and people overeating and things like that. I wanted to bring this quickly back to a state level. I'm wondering uh, – I'll start with you, Paul. If you think that the state could do something to help bring down costs by doing things like passing laws that would say it is illegal in a public place in Indiana to smoke – or to uh, pass other legislation that says we're going to ensure that you take care of your health even if you as a citizen of the state of Indiana aren't going to do it just by your own choice. I mean would that in fact help uh, bring down some of these costs to start state by state thus making the federal problem less constrictive financially? Uh, To your point, first of all, I do agree that states – let's consider a state – uh, mandate like we've done in Massachusetts. I think some elements of that are working. I don't think that you can mandate uh, healthy lifestyles. You can't force people uh, to follow certain guidelines. They will find ways around it. I, I very much enjoy living in Bloomington and being able to go out to eat and not have to walk away from uh, a room full of smoke. Uh, so I do think we need to encourage through education, uh, you know, I, I think a carrot approach of some sort. I do believe that we need to uh, help people understand. Not everyone understands perhaps that uh, eating uh, a large number of fatty hamburgers or not eating enough vegetables uh, has the impact. So maybe we are assuming that people have knowledge they may not necessarily uh, understand the full impact. So I would be be supportive of education but not trying to mandate uh, people to say you've got to walk a certain number of hours a week or you've got to eat this number of vegetables. Uh, however, the smoking uh, legislation has been passed has been effective, but in, maybe if we can handle some of these other issues similarly, perhaps that would work. Well, and there have also been laws that have been passed that say restaurants have to list the ingredients of everything that's on their menu, that if you're a packaged food provider, you have to put a, a detailed list of ingredients on your packaging. Uh, couldn't these things um, in fact – give people some of this education that you say that they need and that they may not have even though they think they have it? There could be benefits from that. But for example, even with the smoking legislation, with the uh, bans on campus and bans in restaurants and bars, uh, you have people who have throat cancer who have tubes in their throat still trying to get a cigarette into their body. They're they're hooked. And this is a product that's uh, it's a tax revenue producer uh, for the state and the federal. So there's only so far you can go where people have to wake up and make a change and make and have an epiphany that my life needs to change. Rob? You know, the smoking thing I think is is such a, an interesting issue. There's so many sides to it. Um, sometimes people tend to say, you know, those smokers, those ones, they've already had throat cancer, they're still smoking. Um, you know, that's that's kind of an example of how bad things can get, which it is. But I, um, I recently heard this reframed a little bit because you know there was a time maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was kind of a big debate within medicine. Should doctors fire their patients who can't quit smoking? Uh, it was a big discussion and then kind of physicians ended up saying, I don't know, I think I'll keep taking care of them. But it's, it's really frustrating. And then just recently somebody said to me, you know, keep in mind that 80 percent of smokers became addicted as children. That really changes the whole frame of it, doesn't it? Um, because it's actually – and that's probably a conservative number. But you know, almost everybody who's, who, who becomes a lifelong smoker started before age 18. So they became addicted as children. It's a very different way to frame that. And then you start thinking, OK, so what can we really do to help that problem? Um, and I think that changes things a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. The website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We're talking about health care with uh, three people today. Paul Van Cleve, who's the vice president of operations for SciHo Insurance Services of Bloomington. Rob Stone, a physician, director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense National Plan and um, Common Sense Health Plan, I'm sorry. <laughs> and June Lyle, who's the state director of AARP Indiana. Uh, Rob, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've been an advocate for the single-payer plan for many years. You've made many presentations, had many um, – you've been on here several times. Um, and yet it doesn't appear that a single-payer plan is going to be in the works with this health care reform. At least that's what I think you – know, you're nodding your head, so I guess you do agree with that. Um, what, you know, what, what things are in the plan that you think uh, – must stay in the plan. Or there, there isn't a specific plan, right? But what are the what are the the things, the parts of the discussion that you think are are must be there for this to be effective? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you alluded to it. There are still five major plans in Congress: three in the House, two in the Senate. Plus, there are plenty of other bills, and including there is a single payer bill in front of Congress, HR six seven six, that has about ninety sponsors. And but we know that it's not going. It's not one of the bills that's going to pass this year. Although there is apparently going to be some kind of a, a vote on a version of of the single payer bill on the House floor sometime in the next three or four weeks or so. But nonetheless, this, the bills that are going through right now, you know, it's, it, as Paul alluded to, it's, it's such a complicated process. Uh, we just don't know what's going to come out of it. Um, I certainly have concerns about the the bill that's going the, the bills that are going through right now. This is the Bacchus bill. So the Bacchus of the five bills that that, that are out there, the, the two in the Senate, the one that seems most likely to pass the Senate is going to be the one from the uh, from the Senate Finance Committee from Senator Bacchus. And uh, you know, we found out a couple weeks ago that um, the woman uh, Liz Fowler, who's Bacchus's chief health care aide, uh, and who actually typed. The version of the bill that uh, that Bacchus uh, is, uh, supports, that woman on December 31st was a vice president of Anthem Wellpoint. Uh, and on January 2nd, she started working as uh, Senator Bacchus's chief health care aide. So it's, it's a little frightening sometimes, a little discouraging to, and to see the, the revolving door and the intimate ways. And, and of those five bills that I mentioned, the Bacchus bill is the one by far the most um, friendly to the insurance uh, – the health insurance industry. It's the only one that does not include a public option uh, and it was written by a vice president of Anthem Wellpoint. It, it's a little worrisome and yet it's the democratic process and we heard about it and we know about it now. It's, it's been talked about on national TV and, and so on. So um, – uh, but uh, politics and, 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 and legislative debate uh, has been likened to making sausage for a good reason. Right. OK. June, are, are the, the public option, as Rob, Rob said, the public option is not in the Bacchus bill. Is that something that you think is, is important to some kind of reform? What AARP is looking at in terms of health care reform is the outcomes. Will it achieve the outcomes of affordability uh, and coverage and ending discrimination? We think there are a number of different ways to get there. The public option uh, could very well be one of those ways, but we're not wedded to a particular method uh, of, of seeing the result. Um, so we're, we're fairly agnostic at this point uh, on, the, on the public option issue. Um, but I would like to speak a little bit to the Bacchus bill, and I, I think Rob raised some some good concerns about that. From AARP's perspective, we see that you know the, the Bacchus bill did pass out of committee earlier this week um, with one Republican um, uh, voting uh, in favor of the bill. Um, so a little bit of, of bipartisan support uh, for this version. Um, we think it does some good things. Um, we think that it you know um, from the standpoint that it increases preventative benefits in Medicare. That's a plus for our members. It ensures that doctors who serve patients under Medicare care aren't going to face a pay cut this year. That's a plus. It does significantly reduce drug costs for people on Medicare. It closes the Medicare donut hole, that dreaded donut hole coverage gap by about 50 percent. So we see those things as all being positive. But we think there are some key shortcomings. One is that we'd like to see the donut hole closed all the way. We don't think 50 percent is far enough. Uh, and then the other is that the Bacchus bill allows a pretty significant um, 
uh, cost discrimination for older folks versus younger folks. And this is – it's called age rating and it's a fairly technical term. But the Bacchus bill would allow a four-to-one age rating or disparity between what other older folks are charged versus younger folks. The House bill, um, by contrast, um, keeps that much more narrow at a two-to-one age rating, which AARP thinks is a much better way to go. Okay. Paul, we've got a couple of phone calls. But first, I want to get to you and let you talk a little bit about the Bacchus bill or about uh, anything that you've heard from your other our, our other panelists. Uh, certainly. Uh, the Bacchus bill, I think, uh, whether it's the Bacchus bill or some blend of the Bacchus bill along with whatever comes out of the House as a final product, I think that there will be certain uh, impacts. I think we ant- can anticipate that there will be tax increases either in the form of direct taxes based on income or through hidden taxes. I think one version of the Bacchus bill suggests as much as a 40 percent uh, levy, I think is what they're calling it, uh, against the high deductible plans or the costlier plans that, uh, for example, the single premium is more than $8,000. So I think we've got a, uh, a budget deficit already. The uh, concerns is that this could be a, a trillion-dollar impact uh, to our economy in, in the next 10 years. And I think this, based on the government's ability to project costs in the past, that that's probably a conservative number. So the concerns are, uh, will it affect me as an individual uh, in terms of my tax uh, directly, either through an income tax, although it's uh, one version says it will not affect income tax, but perhaps some type of hidden tax. What will affect the economy as a whole? This is not an insignificant uh, issue. The Canadian system, which only covers 43 million Canadians and is a $10 billion program is looking to lose a billion dollars this year. So I think we need to look at the other uh, the programs like in Britain where they own the physicians and they can't seem to control cost. We need to look at history and not try to uh, write our own plans without looking at all the sides. So I think there will be impacts uh, on us as persons, as individuals, on employers. And I think that this will just be a segue into a, a long-term uh, single-payer system down the road. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to go to the phones. We have a couple of callers. Rick is first. Rick? Hi. Hi, Rick. Uh, but yeah, your panel was talking earlier about high-risk behavior and the need to educate people about that kind of behavior. I, I sort of think you must be living underneath a rock if you haven't figured this whole thing out by now. My question is, how far as a society are we willing to go in outlawing or, or regulating high-risk behavior, You know, be it uh, fast food, cigarettes, motorcycle riding, anything quite like that? And... Uh, you know, at what point do we stop and and retain some of our freedoms? Anyway, I'll hang up and listen to the answer. All right, Rick. Somebody want to handle that? Rob? Um, well, Rick, I think, you know, in some ways you kind of touched on um, on the real crux of the issue. And, and I don't think anybody uh, in this in this room has been under a rock. But uh, on the one hand, we really want to encourage personal responsibility. Uh, and so, on the other hand, one of the ways to do that is to legislate, uh, which then uh, cuts into our, our freedoms. And so, it's a big debate because some people uh, really think, uh, for instance, in many states in the United States, that um, you have to wear a helmet to uh, ride a motorcycle. And there's a really good uh, financial argument for the taxpayers of Indiana that you ought to re- wear, be required to wear, wear a helmet if you ride a motorcycle in Indiana. But our uh, law got repealed uh, quite a few years ago now. And there doesn't seem to be uh, any interest in bringing it back. Any str- I shouldn't say any interest. There's no strong political move to bring it back. Well, I expected that there would be some comment uh, from someone of Rick's ilk. And I think that it, it's important to note also that people have been um, covered under insurance policies for a long time that have said and, – and this especially applies to people like professional athletes have this all the time. They, they cannot do things like ride motorcycles because they are insured to the hilt to be able to perform or to look a certain way. And these policies already exist. It's not like we would be creating something that's, that's completely unheard of, right? Uh, exactly. In fact, I've seen some extremes, uh, not with SIHO, but uh, in other plans I've looked at where employers are self-funded or encoded through an ERISA program, where if you were in an accident and your child wasn't wearing a seatbelt or uh, was riding a bike without a bike helmet, that they would not be covered. So those extremes can exist. 
uh, where employers have the ability to make their own rules and not under state or federal mandates. So we do have to do something. Uh, interestingly, uh, about 70 to 75 percent of admissions or visits to physicians, house, uh, to physicians' offices are a result of a non-medical uh, purpose, mental health. I think the Mental Health Parity Act that we just passed is significant, and I think more of a focus perhaps helping people understand why do I smoke or why do I have some of these unhealthy habits could come back to a, a mental health a stress in our life, dealing with stressors that can cause us to go to the physician's office seeking the magic pill that will make us feel better when we leave there. So certainly I think um, not having been under that rock but trying to view things realistically and having been in a motorcycle wreck and wearing a helmet, uh, sometimes we, we do need to be pushed to, to – uh, to have certain behaviors like wearing seatbelts, like wearing uh, motorcycle helmets. So I think to the extent we want the government to provide for us, we might suspect and expect them to say it comes with strings. June? AARP spends a lot of time and energy trying to educate our members around issues like healthy lifestyles, how to eat right, how to exercise, how to quit smoking, all those kinds of things. The reality is, you know, the information is is great. Changing behavior is really tough. Um, but I do think that there is a concept that is kind of percolating out there in healthcare reform right now, which is the idea of a, a medical home. And this is basically the idea that each person in this country should have a primary care physician that they are in regular contact with. And this is not a panacea. It's not going to solve every problem in the world. But there are a lot of people out there who are making poor health decisions that if they were in regular contact with a primary care physician who could talk to them about what they eat and their smoking habits and that kind of thing um, could could make some healthier decisions. So I think that's that's something positive that we could look at in health care reform. And I'd just add um, one quick thing to that is that um, I'm a big supporter of medical homes, but I also think that ultimately a lot of the preventative stuff that we're talking about, the, the counseling and the lifestyle stuff, is not most efficiently done at a doctor's office, but it's really done community-wide in schools and all other forums like that. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to go back to the phones before uh, – it'll be break time after this phone call. So let's go to Robert. Robert, Hi. go ahead. Yeah. uh, On this same uh, topic, I'd like to point out that it's not just smoking and it's not just junk food that is contributing to to all of our medical problems. I'm 71, and since I was a kid, there are thousands of chemicals that have been introduced into our water, our atmosphere, and especially our food products. It's very hard to eat healthy anymore because of the adulterants that are in so-called good food. I think before you blame two or three things, you, you're going to have to sort out some of this other stuff, and I don't really know how you can do that. But you're using two or three things as a scapegoat for what is more, much more uh, pervasive and prevalent. And also, and a little off the topic, but there's something close to 100,000 preventable deaths occur in hospitals and, and medical facilities. Uh, I think you could uh, do something maybe there. I'll listen to your answers. All right. Let's turn to the physician in the room. Rob? Well, I think um, the quality issue is certainly one that uh, too often gets left behind. And, and you, you referenced the 100,000 number. You know, the estimates are somewhere between thirty and 100,000 deaths per year in hospitals in this country that are felt to be related to medical errors that are prevent, pre- possibly preventable. And that's a huge number of deaths. Now, exactly what to do about that is um, has been, this, of course, the subject of lots of discussion. Um, and so far, we haven't made a huge impact on those numbers, but we're we're addressing them. Personally, I think that um, the finance issues of healthcare, um, the the problems um, related to hospitals and and provider physicians and others, um, just kind of trying to navigate the crazy, complicated, and collapsing system that we're in right now, uh, has distracted uh, a lot of individual physicians and and hospital administrators and all, uh, and so. 
I think until we kind of figure out the finance end and the the affordability and uh, and the access issues, I think we're going to be kind of distracted from the um, uh, from the from the quality issues. Even it's going to be hard to make progress. There, there's just so many things going on right now. And the other thing I would also quickly mention too is that you know the most recent study uh, that's just been released shows that another 45,000 people a year uh, are dying um, in this country because they, they don't have access to health care and so their deaths are, are – because they don't have insurance and, they, and it's so difficult to access health care if you don't have any health insurance and, and that's a whole other uh, bunch of people who are dying. What was that number? 45 million? 45,000 a year. So one every 12 40, 45 seconds, million 12 minutes. don't have – insurance. 40, yeah, 46, 47, somewhere between 45 and 50 million don't have insurance. But the new number, it used to be 18,000 a year died because of lack of insurance. And now it's up to 45,000 a year die from lack of health insurance. All right. We've got a wide ranging conversation about health care and how we're going to solve this health care issue here uh, today. So if you uh, want to join us on the program, just Give us a call, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2. Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Stan Jastrzewski from WFIU, and today our topic is health care and health care reform. We have three guests in the studio, Rob Stone, a physician and director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan. He's also state coordinator for the Indiana Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. June Lyle is here. She's the state director of AARP, uh, AARP Indiana. And also Paul Van Cleve is with us. Paul's the vice president of operations for SIHO Insurance Services of Bloomington. You can join us on the phone today, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. I want to get to a, a sort of contrarian position because that's kind of my way. Um, I've, I've heard it said before that, that medicine is not about keeping people healthy. It's about making them healthy again when they get sick. And I, I was thinking about this as it refers to a doctor's or an insurance company's bottom line. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm wondering if, if you guys think there are doctors or insurance companies out there who do not in fact want people to be terribly healthy and have health care. Do they not want health care reform? Because it seems like there's a couple of ways to look at this. You can have more patients if you have health care reform who you are confident can then pay you because they have insurance or you've got patients who are healthier because they're getting more coverage and therefore don't come to you and don't come to the insurance company as often. And uh, Rob, uh, you as a doctor, uh, you know, is it possible that you could be – you or other doctors could be financially hurt if people are kept healthier in this country and don't have to come to you and say, hey, hey, doc, my arm hurts. What can we do about it? Stan, you are contrarian. <laughs> <laughs> but you said two different things, uh, I think. You said, there are there people who do not want to have health care reform? And you said, are there, are there physicians and insurance companies who don't want people to be healthy? And I think clearly the answer to the second is, is no. Uh, I, you know, of course, I work in the emergency room where uh, everybody comes in to see me because they're 
at least thinking that something is really bad wrong with them. And um, I'm not worried about going out of business. <laughs> uh, but there are a lot of people who don't want to see reform for a lot of different reasons, mostly I think to do with uh, with money because there's a lot of money in our system right now that's – and not all that's going into actual – delivering health care. But I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Uh, you know, if, if you're a hammer, then the world looks like a nail. And if you're a surgeon, then you see people and you want to take their gallbladder out or whatever. Um, but I just, I'm just not worried about running out of business. And I don't think there are too many physicians who are. Well, then let me ask you another question. If you're not running out of business, um, and it's it's well known that you know uh, specialists in medicine can make two three hundred thousand dollars a year. Family doctors make considerably less, but still most of them six figures. So you're you're all doing okay. Could you as doctors make this process less costly, or could you in fact charge less and thus have less money in the system? And if if there's less costs to pay you as doctors or to buy cheaper medical supplies that still do the same thing. And of course, there's always research going on on how to make procedures cheaper and how to make uh, this uh, less costly for the patient anyway. What can doctors do? Uh, and, and would you and <laughs> would you be willing to to go to your doc your fellow doctors and say, well, wait a minute, we're, we're still going to make a good living if we make, you know, 75 percent of what we make now? Well, um... Again, you've asked several questions at once here. So um, which one to start with? Um, you know, I, actually, I think the numbers are something in the range of the average family physician in the United States today makes around $150,000 a year. The average um, internal medicine doctor makes around $200,000 a year. Uh, a lot of the specialists make three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 a year. And of course, there's a wide, a wide variation there. There are certainly a number of family doctors in rural Indiana who would love to make $150,000 sure. a year, even though they're working 60 hours a week. Whatever we do, and of course, part of what I do do is is, is go around and talk to physician groups and talk at hospitals and stuff, and say, um, you know, we need to figure out a different way, uh, some different ways that we're going to get paid because those are the implications. But I honestly don't think that we're going to be able to get anywhere if we reduce the average income of physicians. And the reason for that is. Uh, we got a lot more work to do. If we're going to cover 40 to 50 million uninsured, uh, you know, we're going to need more providers, not just more physicians and more nurse practitioners, uh, but also more uh, x-ray techs and respiratory therapists. We're going to need more people to go into the health, health system uh, to, 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 to take care of people. And as far as physicians are concerned, I don't think that um, – the best and the brightest are going to choose medical school over law school and business school, uh, which is what we're already seeing happening, uh, if they can't make a good living. And, and, and really, if, if you think about kind of this average family doctor making $150,000 a year, um, a lot of them are working 60 hours a week to do that. So that's only $50 an hour. Uh, so I don't know that you – know, but there are certainly plenty of examples of physicians who are making tons of money, probably um, outrageous amounts of money. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think cutting average doctor salaries is actually going to be a very um, productive way to, to actually solve our problems. Um, and, and again, I don't think we're going to run out of business. Uh, but I think you know people do always say, uh, and Paul can comment on this: the most expensive item uh, that uh, in our whole healthcare system that doctors control is the pen, or now it's the <laughs> keyboard. Uh, you know, it's, it's the ordering of tests uh, and the ordering of procedures that drives a lot of the costs up. And physicians need to work better, for sure, at um, ordering things carefully. All right. I think June wanted to make a comment. Paul, you should be able to respond to this question that Stan asked too since he said insurance companies and uh, physicians. So. Well, I'm in an agreement that uh, I don't think we're at any risk of seeing a, a dearth of illness or, or things for, for doctors and insurance companies to do, particularly with the graying of America. Um, and I also agree that uh, the provider issue is one that we need to look at very seriously. Um, we're currently in a situation where a lot of doctors choose to go into specialty care because that is 
it tends to be, you know, where the higher reimbursements are. And we have a shortage in this country of primary care physicians and then also of nurses and other um, uh, paraprofessionals um, in in uh, the healthcare system. The other thing that I would point out is that although I don't think there's an issue of, you know, having the wrong incentive in terms of, you know, wanting to keep people sick, I do think that the incentives, uh, the payment incentives within the healthcare system really do need to be looked at very seriously. And I, I think that some of the congressional legislation right now takes small steps to doing this. But right now, um, we doctors are getting perverse incentives, as, as Dr. Stone said, to, you know, order a bunch of tests that may or may not be cost effective and, and do a bunch of other things that really aren't resulting in the highest quality outcomes. And so we would support an approach that's based on um, reimbursing for outcomes as opposed to reimbursing for particular services <coughs> or tests. Paul? Uh, both June and Rob have made some really good points and Stan, I really like your questions, uh, particularly about the bottom lines and insurance companies. Uh, certainly for SIHO, I can speak directly that if you look at our product line, everyone has a preventive maintenance program. Many of those covered at 100 percent or with a, a certain number of upfront uh, dollars. Uh, for example, uh, we realize that colonoscopies are very important. They cost uh, in the neighborhood around $5,000, Dr. Stone, somewhere, I think. Yet we encourage uh, in our enrollment meetings, uh, we educate people. If you have uh, mammograms or certain histories of, of cancers or, or uh, colon cancer, for example, that we actually pay for those things because we'd rather try to catch those preventive things. So we have a focus on prevention. We believe in prevention. Uh, other catchwords I've heard are uh, medical homes and uh, one that I think uh, Dr. Stomer kind of hinted at is uh, the integration of a health care team where you have a primary care physician and June mentioned the value of that. Uh, I'd like to see that also include a mental health professional uh, as well as uh, the uh, other attending staff, the, the nurses. Uh, Patients asking physicians questions, uh, I think, will be a big part of, of where we need to go. So I don't think most insurance companies are focusing on the bottom line. They'd rather keep you uh, healthy. Uh, kind of a historic fact is that 80 percent of the people who have health insurance or uh, have claims uh, represent only 20 percent of the population. So 20 percent of the population is spending an average of 80 percent of the health care dollars. So how do we get those 20 percent better? I think part of that is through diagnostic testing or establishing a baseline through a health risk appraisal. There are a number of tools that are available. But uh, I, I do believe that we can get to where there's, there's a product that will reduce costs, improve health care, and give physicians a better lifestyle. Certainly 60 hours a week is not ideal. Uh, and this product, I think, is going to come fr from the government at some point with the input from all the individuals out there who are impacted by this. Mm -hmm. All right. We have three phone calls. People have been waiting to uh, talk to us. So let's go to John first. John? I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Sure. I want to move back to the public option. <clears throat> I, every poll I've seen over the last uh, year or two has had a high support for the public option, yet our legislators are not uh, supporting that in the, in the Congress. Can you explain to us, or explain to me at least, what the reason for that is, the public is supporting the public option, and our legislators are not supporting it in, in, in the general in the legislation itself. Okay, John, I want I want to get Paul's take on a public option. I appreciate this opportunity. I think a public a public option uh, is certainly one approach, but not as a single pair. Unlike Dr. Stone, where I think that that's the only I believe in competition, and that through competition we can get better. Uh, there are. To answer the gentleman's question, why aren't we hearing more about it? You have special interests. If you look, if anyone's making a good uh, payday out of this current situation, is probably the lobbyists. Uh, if you look at the tens of millions of dollars that, that have been spent since January uh, through the labor unions, through the physicians, through the health plans, everyone who has an interest is trying to influence what this bill will look like. So I think a public option is something certainly that should be considered. We need to do it uh, in a way that is fair to everyone, the workers, as well as the people who are not fortunate to have a job, uh, at the same time by not breaking the bank, so to speak, so that we go further and further into debt where we owe money that we can't pay for ourselves so that we have to rely on our generations of our children to try to pay back. I think that would be unfair for them. The public option would add competition to the mix. I mean, that's what, that's what it would do. It would keep the, the insurance companies from having a monopoly. 
I, I, I thank you for that response. Uh, actually, I don't think uh, in, in the current market, there are, in fact, the government insures or provides coverage for over half of the uh, American population now in some form. Uh, a question I like to ask is, uh, and you've, you've heard this, uh, can we have the same plan that our congressmen and senators have? They have, they have five choices to choose from. Uh, if they want us to have all the things that they're putting out there, offer us their plan, or at least lay it out there as something similar to that. So I think in terms of uh, and if you have to look at the Wall Street Journal, for example, or other, or even the Herald Times, uh, you will find information that you can form, make an informed decision uh, regarding this. And that is that if the federal government is the sole payer or just one of several, th- they have the ability to print money. They have the ability to underwrite in a way that it would actually makes it unfair competition because it becomes unfair because they are be, will be holding most of the, of the cards. But the competition is unfair now with the, with the oligarchy that the, that the uh, insurance companies have. There are ways to help that. Like right now, states are not able to uh, sell across state lines. So if I have a, a, a good company, a good rate in uh, Virginia, for example, there are restrictions that allow me to offer my health plans in other states. So there are other ways to improve the current system. Okay, John, we're going to have to go. But I did, I did hear you say, Paul, early on that you, you would favor a public option as part of this, right? Based on how it's structured, I think right. it could work. Right. But it has to be worked in, in such a way and designed in such a way that it doesn't eliminate the private carriers. Right. Okay. Rob, quick. Well, I just say the interest. A lot of people don't understand, but um, interestingly enough, the American Medical Association, uh, a group that uh, is not necessarily um, popular uh, as it used to be, it actually favors uh, House Bill thirty two hundred with the public option. And uh, at the Indiana State Medical Association uh, annual meeting a couple weeks ago, there was uh, a vote on the House of on, on the House of Delegates there that ended up uh, favoring the public option um, 65 percent. Uh, so even physicians uh, think there's, there's something to be done here, understanding that we don't really even know what this public option is. I mean, we say this term as if it's got a defined meaning and it, it's really unclear as to what it is going to be or if it, if it will come through, what it's going to be. OK. We have uh, three more phone calls waiting. Uh, so let's go to Valerie. Valerie? Um, Yeah, I've got a real bad connection here. I hope you can hear me, but um, I did tune in a little bit late, so if this has been addressed, I apologize. But my concern, I guess primarily because I am one, is for the people in this country who are truly in poverty, who, you know, I'm living on $10,000 a year, um, ironically, of course, because I was basically driven out of a full-time job at IU because of declining health. And even though I work 40 hours a week for the state of Indiana, I get no benefits because I'm what they call intermittent and have even been kicked out of perf. So my point is, one, I haven't really heard anybody address this segment of our society. I think a lot of people, including probably most of my legislators, are kind of in denial of the large numbers of people in this group. Uh, I guess it really does disturb me to hear people vilify our group by saying, you know, basically that... We are the reason that costs are so high and this assumption that these people do access health care. It's just all written off as, you know, charity cases, which, of course, isn't true or there wouldn't be 45,000 of us dying. But my point is that all of these bills that I'm a little bit familiar with, um, none of them really address people who have virtually no disposable income. You know, even if there's a subsidy that's going to pay 92 percent, I think, the most liberal of these of a of a insurance premium. Um, there are people who have no dis, no uh, expendable income, and uh, also even if it were paid 100 percent, you know, what kind of copay are they going to have? What kind of deductible are they going to have? And uh, I'm talking about the people who stand in line, you know, at Mother Hubbard cupboard every week between four and six, and the people who are homeless. And uh, I really haven't heard anybody. You know, it just seems counterproductive to have a mandate and uh, require these people to, you know, buy insurance, you know, when they have no uh, expendable income and then fine them if they don't. And uh, short of the single-payer system, I I haven't heard anybody really address people that will not be able to afford any money toward 
preview, so I'm going to hang up okay. and listen to your reply. All right, Valerie, thanks. Valerie, this is June from AARP, and I think you raise a, a really important issue that is not being talked about you know, on the network news as they're talking about. They're talking about the middle class. There are a lot of people out there who are not in the middle class and are wondering how this is, is going to affect them. You know, I don't know in great detail exactly how these proposals would affect you, but I, let me just give you a, a framework for what I do know. One is that the majority of the proposals would substantially increase the state Medicaid programs. Right now, Indiana Medicaid only covers people up to 22 percent of the federal poverty level, which is basically no income at all. So there's a, there's a strong chance that you would become eligible under uh, the Medicaid program uh, to have your health care covered. There might be some small co-pays there, but it's re- under Medicaid, it, it tends to be tends to be pretty reasonable. The, the larger challenge is, is actually finding a doctor. Um, the other thing is that uh, if you were to fall outside of that, there would be substantial subsidies um, to be able to help you be able to pay for a health insurance plan through a health insurance exchange where you could shop for plans and they would have to have minimum benefit packages. So you wouldn't have to run the risk of going out there and buying something that you pay for it and then you end up finding that it doesn't cover you for the health care coverage that you need. So I think, you know, without, you know, we'd have to look at each individual situation, but I think what's being talked about in Congress is positive uh, for low-income folks. Paul? Uh, June, I substantiate and support what you're saying. Uh, in fact, uh, for the call, I'm, I'm sure I didn't catch your name. Valerie. Uh, Valerie, uh, the House bill, each one of the bills that are out there right now do take in consideration those with lower income and perhaps even zero income. The uh, Senate bill actually provides uh, folks with individuals' incomes up to 130 percent of poverty level would get Medicaid and those with 133 to 400 percent would get uh, subsidies based on a sliding scale. In the House Democratic bill, uh, the sliding scale subsidies for those would be uh, those with making up to 400 percent of poverty level uh, and it could be like $68,000 a year for a family of four. Uh, what's likely to happen is the final bill will probably uh, include Medicare subsidies, as June's alluded to, and are likely uh, and, and are likely will remain in the bill. Obviously, they're, they're not being forgotten. You're a very important segment of this population. All right. Let's go to Amy. Amy? Hey, Amy. Do we have Amy? All right. We will go next to Justin. Is this Justin? Do we have no callers? We had to. So we'll go next to Stan. (laughs) I know he's here. I'm here. Uh, June, I wanted to ask you, uh, some of the plans talk about, uh, and the president wants a plan that covers pre-existing conditions. And of course, a lot of these pre-existing conditions um, are are dealt with by the elderly um, and, and people who have the need for consistent medical care. And that's expensive to treat, a lot of those. What do you think adding that provision would do to this final compromise that may end up getting worked out? Sure. Well, the pre-existing condition and, and eliminating insurers' ability to discriminate on that uh, is is really important um, to our members. You know, our 65-plus members uh, receive coverage under Medicare regardless of what their health status is. So although Medicare is actually more expensive than a lot of people realize, at least they've got guaranteed coverage. Between age 50 and 64, though, is where people really have a hard time. Right now, they are paying uh, ridiculous high premiums to be able to get health care. A lot of them can't even be able to buy health care because of pre-existing conditions. And there is some cost associated certainly with covering those folks. But the reality is that our Medicare costs right now are much higher to us as taxpayers because we're not insuring everybody in that 50 to 64 age group. People hit that Medicare and, you know, they've had a decade of um, um, chronic conditions that have developed and gone untreated. So I think in the long term, uh, we, we will see savings um, through making sure that people in the 50 to 64 age group are covered. Rob? I'd just add to that, you know, just to clarify, there, if you define elderly as 65 or above, there's, there's no issue with pre-existing conditions in the United States uh, for the elderly because they're all covered by Medicare. And so there's no, there's no issue there. But there's a huge problem uh, as people approach Medicare age. And there's actually been a, a very interesting study that uh, shows that basically in the United States, 65-year-olds are healthier than 64-year-olds uh, because so many people in their 
late 60s are holding on until Medicare. And then once they hit 65, they can finally get the mammogram. They can finally get the knee replacement. So the, and, they, and they can actually go back to work after they get the knee replacement, things like that. And the other thing, the only other thing I would add is that it's also, I think, uh, important to note that the disproportionate share of this problem uh, in, the 60, in the 54 to 64 age range is women. Women make up a huge majority of these people who can't get insurance uh, because they don't have, they're less likely to work in jobs that have insurance uh, or their husbands are older than them. And they, and their husband hits 65 and then suddenly the, the woman is no longer covered by the employer's uh, or divorce, uh, or are being widows. So women vastly uh, are overrepresented in the uninsured population between age 54 and 65. Okay. We have about three minutes to go in the program. We have David on the line. David? Uh, uh, good afternoon. I've uh, found the program very interesting, but one of the issues that I'm familiar with that uh, has not been addressed has to do with the way insurance companies tie the hands of the physicians with regards to charging patients. Uh, in Indiana, we have a very hideous law called the Most Favored Nations Treaty, which is a compact that the uh, physician signs with an insurance company when he agrees to be part of their network, which in essence says that they cannot charge a patient less than what they have agreed to accept from that particular company. The other problem that I see is with the small employers who can't afford group insurance being locked out because we're not allowing uh, physicians to contract directly with their patients for prices other than what's locked into the system. And until we get something which uh, gives us transparency in pricing so that there is uh, a, a knowledge uh, ahead of time as to what costs are and allows for people who have such as HSA accounts at their disposal to be able to shop intelligently for medical services, we're never going to solve this problem. All right. We've given uh, Paul like one minute to answer this. So, <laughs> Paul. That long? Uh, actually, I was hoping Rob might be able to talk about the billing part. Uh, uh, Carla, what I would suggest is that actually uh, – I'm not familiar with the favored nation where insurance companies are tying the hands of physicians. Uh, that's not the way we contract. Uh, each carrier contracts with providers based on a number of factors, uh, and there's some complex uh, methodologies for that. Uh, however, when you go to your physician, uh, when you go to your dentist, uh, you ask up front what a procedure will cost you. You can certainly ask uh, if there might be some consideration. And in fact, uh, people without insurance do often get charged a higher rate because uh, they do not, uh, as individuals, bring enough volume to the member. However, I, I really don't think that there is a direct correlation where insurance companies are tying the hands of physicians and telling them what, what they can or cannot charge. In 10 seconds, are your hands tied, Rob? Well, my hands are tied uh, by many, many things, and 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 the fine. But the most I am familiar a little bit with most favored nations. It's way too complicated to explain right now. But it, our whole system is just so complicated right now, and that's part of the problem. We need to simplify it. I wish we had more time, and we could go into this a little bit more. But we can't. We're out of time. I want to thank Paul Van Cleve, Rob Stone, and June Lyle for being here, and also thanks to Stan for sitting in today, and also to Ariana Prothero and Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.